Welcome to another episode of Well, This Isn't Normal, a podcast about dealing with it, stressful things, difficult things, weird things, wonderful things, the stuff of life. That's what we talk about here. And hopefully you will hear some examples of stress management, stress relief strategies, and maybe glean from this podcast some ways in which you can be a happier, healthier person. Or you can just enjoy me talking to some really interesting people. Today, I'm chatting with Ben Mankiewicz. Ben is a host on Turner Classic Movies. He has an incredible speaking voice, a voice for radio. I love it. Also great hair. (laughs) He was a reporter for years. He is a super smart guy, a compelling individual, a dear friend of Kelly O'Coyne, who is an actor from Showtime's Billions and other places who was quite recently a guest on this very podcast. They are both really neat people and clearly very different, which is great. I love when I get to talk to friends and see ways in which they might be similar and ways in which they might be uh, quite a contrast to one another. So Ben is a dope dude. I hope you enjoy our chat and I will talk to you again at the end of the interview. Hey, well, this isn't normal listening audience friends. I'm here with my internet friend and now my still internet friend, <laughs> TCM Zone, Ben Mankiewicz. Hi. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Uh, yeah, it's nice to uh, s- sort of meet. <laughs> it's nice to meet your face. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, progress. Progress. Oh, One day. Very exciting. Your hair looks great. You, like me, have a lot of hair. Um, I, like, let's not kid ourselves. I've had uh, some success in this uh, business, and I think the hair is, is like 41% of it. Um, <laughs> I uh, No, the hair's good. And the, the current uh, uh, situation has prevented me from getting a haircut, so it's like getting extra rich and lush. Yeah, it's getting lustrous and, and wonderful. Um, how, well, first of all, I met your childhood dear friend Kelly O'Coyne, um, right? Who has no who has no hair, which is who has sense. no hair, looking great mm-hmm. with no hair. And when I talked to him at the time that I talked to him, he had to he and his lovely wife had to uh, isolate in different parts of the house because, as he shared um, on the podcast, which may or may not have aired by the time this one airs, who will who will go first? Who can say? Um, <laughs> you know, they, they had to, for health reasons, do that. And, um, so that, and and they could like watch TV across the living room from each other and just kind of shout things at each other. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been stressful for them. No question. Um, uh, thankfully, uh, they're both actually doing uh, pretty well, but of course that's, uh, that's, uh, stressful. His wife is awesome. Um, and, uh, also a good friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that are, that are, that are stressful and, uh, you know, and it just wears you down. Like it's sort of, you know, you think, oh, look at that. That's adorable. They're watching Ozark in different rooms and talking to each other. But like, you know, after two nights of that, you know, uh, it's not good. Um, yeah, it's cute uh, so for a minute. And then it just gets irritating and sad to not be able to be that's with right. the person it, right. you it gets, love. I get sad. I think that, that, that it's not uh, what a number of people are, are feeling, myself included sometimes. It's like not you're anxious, uh, but you're also, you're sad. Like you, we're, you know, we're social animals. I, you know, I, I love, I love my friends. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you miss the interaction that happens in life that there are certainly upsides. I mean, the, the amount of time that I've, I've got to spend uh, with my family has been really nice and really rewarding and, and overdue. So that feels nice, but there is still this, you know, this loss, this sort of sense that you're, you're missing some significant part of your life. What's your usual, say, daily schedule on a weekday um, when you're home versus now? How has it shifted? Um, well, probably less than a lot of people, like like a lot of writers. I mean, I'm not a writer. I do some writing. and I write my CCM scripts or they send me a draft and then I, I rewrite them. There's a lot of them. 
it's not the most satisfying writing there is. And I write some other stuff too, but you know, writers spend, as we've been reading you know, a lot of time at home, they're like, welcome to our world, you know? Uh, so I have a lot of options. I have an office in Burbank uh, uh, for TCM. Uh, I have another office for some of the other uh, work I do uh, elsewhere, which I almost never go to, but I do work from home most of the time, but I have a lot of reasons to go out. And sometimes just to break the monotony or the noise at home and to get stuff done, I'll just go find somewhere to work and, you know, coffee shop to uh, work on scripts or, you know, um, uh, any of the places that, that people regularly go. So that's all out. But, and then I have shoots, of course, that take me out of the house. So this is certainly more time spent in the house than I, uh, uh, than I have uh, than I have in, in, in some time, but I am here. This is my home office, and I'm here a ton, of course. Now, so Ben, you're you travel a lot for TCM, right? I mean, you're in Atlanta. It feels like a lot of the time to me. Your internet friend. Uh, yes, uh, I'm in Atlanta um, uh, one, a week every month, and so that's obviously changed. Although I was there still in March, I was in Atlanta for sort of during the week when everything changed the the you know 27 hours when everything changed and i'm a huge sports fan and you know i work at at, at, at warner media which used to be turner and you know it's uh, the so the postponement of the nba and the nca tournament as a sports fan and as an employee there which where so much of the revenue is derived from those two events those were huge events and i mean you know on a tuesday uh, i was going to travel with a friend on saturday with my daughter to see the, to go to a party for the Oakland A's in Phoenix, like for, you know, I'm a serious A's fan. And, and, and he provides access to his friend and I was going to take my daughter. I'm going to come back the same day. And they were like, you know, Hey, the, uh, where are the, uh, the big parties canceled, but we'll still go to the game. And then we were like, yeah, fine. That makes sense. And then, you know, 24 hours later, the NCAA tournament's canceled and the NBA playoffs are done. And, and Tom Hanks has coronavirus, you know, like the world seemed like the world changed. I, I don't, I mean, I, I was a, uh, you know, I was 34 years old on September 11th, 2001, but that was the biggest stretch of news. And I'm a big consumer of news and worked in that field for a long time too. That just felt like the biggest news rush that, that I've ever experienced. And I think we'll look back on this whole period and think that obviously it's the biggest story we were ever, ever a part of. That's when it felt real to a lot of people, I think, because that was the first time it really affected most people in a huge way was uh, the NBA being canceled. Once, once they started and, and good on the NBA, which of course, you know, they did the responsible thing being that they had, I think at that time, two players who reported yeah. infection, but good on them for getting ahead of it before, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it was before March Madness. It was. It was. The NBA postponed the season before March Madness canceled because I thought at first, oh, no, they haven't canceled the tournament. They've just delayed it. You know, it was a, you know, slow appreciation among people uh, for, you know, the obviously the gravity of it and the, and the, and the significant steps that were going to have to be made uh, to contain it. You know, because I, of course, being a, a selfish because I'm a human, um, you know, Are was, you sure you're human? Because you look like a sexy hair robot to me, huh? Charming. Thank you. Ben and Cons well, thank is you charming. Oh, my God, yes. Um, <laughs> what are your teams, so, by the way? I know I'm interrupting you, uh, but huh. I am uh, the Edward R. Murrow of my house, so I get to. What are your teams? I'm assuming you're not a Blazers guy like your childhood friend, Kelly. No, no, I, I like the Blazers in the sense that I, you know, first of all, through Kelly. But they're always, I like teams that you, where it's hard because I'm an Oakland A's fan and I grew up in D.C. and there were none. First time I went to an A's game in 1988, I was like, who are these people? I've never met any other A's fans. Um, and I've been an A's fan since I was, uh, you know, nine, I sort of picked them when I started paying attention to baseball. Uh, so, you know, there's a, it's a mix of growing up in DC. I'm a old Washington bullets fan of my one indulgence during this period of, uh, enormous sacrifice was buying $144 worth of bullets for basketball cards from 1974 through 1980. Oh, like, that's oh, must, cool. That's pretty cool. I must have these right now. Um, and, uh, uh, and then, uh, so, you know, when I was, a uh, in football, I was a skins fan, but I, I, I the, between the, the team name, which I could live with while protesting, but the owner is such a reprehensible fellow that I, I resigned 
and living out here, that was easier. But I, my parents went to UCLA, so I grew up a UCLA fan. And then when I moved out to LA, that was that that fit in nicely. But I still so you know Wizards, UCLA Bruins, and the and the A's and football is just based on you know gambling. That's I have not <laughs> yet. I've try, I keep trying teams out that are like cool that are sort of the the teams where you don't find a lot of fans. Like I tried the Lions uh, for a year and the Bills. My dad is a Jets fan. You're always welcome on the Jets fan. <laughs> I, I hate the Giants so powerfully that I sort of like the Jets too. The helmets were cool. And I, you know, I like Joe Namath. I liked Joe Namath then. And I sort of liked the new Joe Namath. I mean, his interview on Howard Stern was great. Like I thought it would be stupid, but he was, he was great. Um, and uh, uh, the bill, I'm sort of settling into the bills, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not, it's not really passionate. I just bought my daughter a, a mini Cleveland Browns football for us to play catch in the house. Again, Browns, Bills, Lions. I'm trying to work. I'm <laughs> trying to work with that. Of sorts. That's right. The yeah, underdogs. Yeah, and yeah. part of it is that I love that feeling that you're a fan of a team that nobody cares about, but you can't force it. And I'm I, in, in football. I am very clearly trying to force it. How old is your uh, kiddo? How old is my daughter? Yeah. I don't know. Five, six. No, she's seven. She turned, we have the same <laughs> birthday. Um, she, uh, uh, which was awesome. So uh, she turned seven when I turned, uh, the age that I have, <laughs> <laughs> which is 27. No, let's not kid ourselves. It's, it's 42. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I said on a, yeah, on, on TCM, I did a, when we introduced, uh, I had a guy, some like it hot on March 25th. Uh, so I say, you know, I want to wish a seven-year-old, little seven-year-old girl in Los Angeles a, a happy birthday. I know she's watching. I know she's watching because I'm making her watch. So uh, again, she turned seven this year, and I, she, I said we share a birthday, and she turned seven, and I can still play forty-six. Well, happy birthday! Happy recent birthday to you. Thank you. It's nice. It's really wonderful to share a birthday with uh, your kid because you know I, I, I never. I don't really, I never cared that much about birthdays. And I, uh, but you know, as you get older, you know, there, I mean, I, I hated turning 50 and, uh, like I, you know, I, I thought I should be like, Oh, it's just a number. But I was like, yeah, I know it's just numbers, a bad number. though. Um, and I loved being a man in my forties that felt, that felt good and comfortable. Um, so now my birthdays just have this sort of, you know, bright light on them now because she, so happy to have a birthday and she gets so excited you know weeks in advance like every uh, like every good kid should and she of course thinks it's free she i mean i hope deep down she thinks it's cool and i know she'll think it's cool later but i don't she doesn't adore having to share it with us but eventually she's gonna think it's cool i bet she is yeah i think she thinks it's even okay now and it's not like i take a lot of attention from her and we've reached the point now where i don't take any gifts from her like there's you're not stealing my little ponies oh that's right that'd be the best yeah (laughs) i'm pretty sure that ken doll is for me sweetie (laughs) i'm sorry i think that that barbie is mine we've been over (laughs) this thank you yeah it's uh it's it's because it's uh it was uh, she got a bunch of barbies but they're like you know there's like uh she got mayor barbie like and she she looked exactly like totally hillary clinton you know <laughs> Somebody at Mattel was like, I'm so fucking mad right now. I'm so fucking mad. I was like just designing it and was like, it's going to look like Hillary. I'm so mad. And they just channeled their anger at the 2016 election into Mayor Barbie, which is great. <laughs> uh, I'm turning uh, 40 in an October. We are recording on uh, April the 7th. So that means my half birthday is coming up. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. April 25th. And I was not stoked about it. Um, until somebody was like, until people started, when I would mention it, people were like, you look great. I was like, great. (laughs) I think I I was like, cool. Now I like it. I mean, I think that turning any age, there are so many different ways to look any age. So you can look fantastic at any age. Different people are going to have a different idea of what an age is supposed to look like based on their personal experience, based on what we see in the overculture and popular culture. Um, so basically just, it's not about, Oh, you look young for your age or you look this for your age. It's just, if, if somebody says you look great, I'm like, I love this baseball team. Like, great. Right. Totally. That's right. That's right. Give up a lifelong Yankees association for the Mets. Cause a Met said I looked great. Great. Let's do this thing. 
into uh, it. Right. Totally. Yeah. Dad, don't, I, uh, don't cut yourself if you're listening, Dad. I don't. I don't mean that. Actually, about the Yankees uh, specifically. Uh, no. But yeah, it's you know we go in the direction of the pats and the likes, right? Whether it's online or in real life, we go in the direction of that for which we get praise. Yeah, and I, I again, I you know, I, I, everything's different depending on who you are, and it's a little different for women, I suppose, than men. But I mean, again, my forties, I just felt it was good. It was like that was I was always, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, mature for my age, really from six on up. Did you always get read as older? Like, were you always read as an older person or did people say you had an old soul? No, I mean, nobody, if anybody said I have an old soul, I'd like the likelihood that I would spend another 30 seconds talking to them was pretty slim. Um, Yeah. Uh, But (laughs) I mean, I just didn't, I never did anything exceptionally crazy. I was among, I mean, I had a mature group of friends too, but you know, I just always felt older than the people I was around, not like massively, but I mean, if I was, you know, my friends were 18 and I really didn't drink much or party much. I just always felt, you know, 26. And then, so just being in my forties just felt natural. Like I thought, oh, since 28, Mm. I've been supposed to be 40, you know, and, uh, but 50, then it's just sort of this idea, you know, I used to have this image of like, you know, when when my friends and I would be together, we're like, if this car crashes and we all die, uh, what's the story in the Washington Post? Like my dad was moderately famous, more a little more than moderately famous in Washington because he was sort of in politics. And, you know, would it be, uh, you know, uh, son of Democratic insider, uh, teenage son of Democratic insider, four others killed in car crash? Or one of my, you know, uh, you read the book, Alexander, a Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Yes, I loved that book. Well, Alexander's one of my closest friends. And so his mom, Judy Viorst, is a, you know, was a successful children's writer. So then we thought, no, it's probably more likely to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, son of children's writer. Yes. You know, son of children's writer, four others killed in car crash. But then when Kelly moved to D.C., he actually moved, you know, if he was in the car, it would be a congressman's son, four others killed, killed in car crash. But and then people would say, oh, my God, they were so young. And now you're like, no, oh, well, you know, yeah, a good run. <laughs> a good run, totally. But you just realize that that idea. And then I work in. I've worked at the Young Turks for a long time too. And I started that show back in 2002 with the current host now, Jenk. And, and you know, we did. We weren't young when we started it. We were 34, probably. Uh, but you know, we felt young. In uh, in that, while I felt more mature, I didn't feel. I never felt old. I just felt like I liked things that older people liked. But I anyway. So uh, there's a contradiction there. I get it. But still. Now, as the show has progressed and all these young people come in and at TCM too, I mean, just not, there's just all these young people who have bright futures. And when I started in journalism, you know, that was a thing I was, they were, you know, when I was good at the beginning, uh, there was this, idea, oh, you've got a big future ahead of you. And now you're like, this is, this is the future. I'm, this is what they were talking about. It's nice, but I don't like, you know, the, 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 the possibilities are, are, are they're no longer living much. <laughs> well, yeah, because you're looking at like how how am I going to do on like how am I going to do on the back nine? Like how am I going to do what happens? Probably the sport right. you don't watch being golf. I'm sure you don't watch golf. It's very boring. Um, but right. uh, <laughs> but like how you know how am I going to do? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Back time? nine is a good. That's a good. Uh, yeah, and like you know, and sometimes you think, what if I'm. Uh, what if I'm already on the green on the mm-hmm. 11th hole, right? Yeah. You know, like the we don't nine know. underway, right? We don't know. And, and, and I sort of don't, I've always said a line I've used often is that like, I don't feel so I'm 53. So I don't so much feel um, like, I don't think I've lived 53 years when I look at my life because life doesn't begin <laughs> in some ways. My marker for when life starts is when you uh, like, when you have a girlfriend and you start sort of, doing the things that happen when you have a girlfriend like that should be there's kids holding stuff. hands May, right. when you start, Benjamin when you start, Bankowitz believes life begins at holding hands which is that's right when you start much more conservative than the catholics even <laughs> what's uh what you know when you start passionately holding hands right that's like a marker so that was 17 for me so i'm like all right i'm really 36 like so <laughs> half my life <laughs> Half my life was 17 to 35, and now it's 35. So this is exactly it. I've now lived 
you know, uh, we're, we're like in these little markers. I'm, I'm now, that's, that's now sort of, what am I? I'm 30. Right. So I'm 36. I feel like we're learning uh, based on when you decide life starts, like what your favorite things are. Like I would say life started when I learned how to read. Um, Your life started when you started holding hands, very passionately holding sweaty, grotesque hands. Yeah. This is, is, well, this isn't normal after dark with Sarah Benenhasa (laughs) and Ben Benkowitz. We're talking about holding hands. Holding hands. (laughs) Well, um, so what brought you to, I mean, dad, dad was in politics. That brought you to D.C. from California. That brought me to, uh, no, brought me to California was a desire to live in California. My folks were from here. Uh, okay. my, my dad, my dad went to Beverly Hills High, pre-zip code, you know, uh, class of class of 1941 at uh, Beverly Hills High. My mom's from San Bernardino, but they both uh, went to UCLA. Um mom, first person in her family, go to college, all that stuff. Um, so, uh, the, uh, just the idea of California always appealed to me, the pace of life, uh, the fact that sports started so early on the weekend. I mean, I'm not kidding. That was like incredibly appealing. The worst time of my life during football season was the time between waking up at nine twenty on a Sunday and thinking, what am I going to do for three hours and 40 minutes <laughs> until football starts? Like, this is agony. Can we please get this going? Um, so uh, I was just, uh, I always wanted to live here. I knew that I wanted to live here. And, uh, and I had a bunch of jobs first. Uh, but when, I, when one job ended in Miami in, 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 19, in 2001, uh, I just was like, well, this is the time. This is, and I was in TV. I wanted to get out of TV news and, and do something else. And that meant coming out here. It was a pretty easy, easy call to make. But you were in Oakland till you were nine. No, no, I was in no, D.C. You were in D.C. You were, DC. Born in, you were born and raised in D.C. Yeah, I know. If I'd been in Oakland, I would have met other A's fans. The point was okay. I grew up in D.C. And oh, were, right, right. Okay. Not, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were born and raised in D.C. Mom and yeah. dad were immigrants from the People's Republic of California, where we currently that's right. And that's so right. this was, in a way, your ancestral homeland. You made Aliyah to California. You returned that's to right. your sacred homeland. And so dad was in politics, which is why dad and mom ended up in D.C. That's right. So my father was in the uh, uh, was in, uh, you know, was a lawyer out here in L.A. And when John Kennedy was elected president, he wanted to, you know, there was this, uh, you know, call to action. Uh, And uh, and so he uh, joined the Peace Corps. I mean, he was uh, and then he was the Peruvian director of the Peace Corps. And then he was the Latin American director of the Peace Corps um, uh, under uh, uh, President Kennedy and then uh, under President Johnson. And then when uh, Bobby Kennedy took a trip to. uh, was planning a trip to Peru, among other, was sort of taking a, a fact-finding mission to Latin America, and uh, you know, back, you know, in Latin America, we were sort of you know fighting communist uh, takeover. Those you know had taken over the you know both parties. That was our big fear, you know, Russian influence in our hemisphere. Um, and Bobby Kennedy was like, "We're messing this up," and wanted to take a trip to. Uh, a bunch of Latin American countries, Peru included. And my father was on a big conference call uh, with the senator. We was then the senator from New York. And so he's going to take this fact-finding mission and, he, and he's and he got this itinerary that he's going over. And when he's in Peru, it involves visiting the American school in Lima and then visiting the American you know, embassy and then taking a guided tour from embassy officials of some other, some park. And then uh, there'll be a reception at the, at the ambassador's residence. And my dad was like, oh, you don't need to, any thoughts? And my dad said, you don't need to leave uh, Washington to meet those people. Uh, and the senator said, gets interested and, and says, my dad says, look, if you want to understand what Peru is like, you know, you got to meet the uh, 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 agricultural workers outside the city who live in these barrios and they're paid a nickel an hour and they're going to go on strike and they hate the government. I'm making up slightly what the issue was, but he took him to real people and people affected by American policy in Latin America. And Bobby says on that call, he's like, listen, I'm flying and I want to, on my first trip, I'm stopping, I'm refueling in Panama. Can you come there and we'll talk? And, you know, so he goes to meet him in Panama and gets on the plane while they're refueling at like two o'clock in the morning. And they spend a couple hours talking. Uh, And then uh, he hired my dad to come back and be his press secretary in Washington. Um, And that began there. And that, uh, that is ultimately what, 
uh, brought my father to uh, uh, to Washington. That's incredible. I mean, your yeah, no, good, your family good is story. absolutely intertwined with American history in so many ways. A little bit, at least uh, certainly the the Kennedys and my father. Most people know my dad from. Uh, from his time as Kennedy's press secretary, he ran George McGovern's campaign in 1972. But he, uh, uh, with Gary Hart, but he, uh, uh, but my father, very sort of famously for people of a certain generation, made the announcement of that Kennedy's health he deteriorated after the uh, uh, after the shooting at the Ambassador Hotel in 1968, and then made the announcement of his, of his death. Jesus, which you can which you can see on YouTube if you want to catch an incredibly depressing moment in American history and in my family's history. I have a few friends who grew up um, with folks in in D.C. My friend John's dad, Jack, was a press secretary for Senator Benson, Lloyd Benson, for a number of years. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh-huh. so when I hear stories from friends like that and I hear about how they were raised, um, it's really interesting because to me, a kid from Jersey, dad worked at a, you know, Birth control company started out in the factory, which sounds weird to a lot of people and should. Uh, mom was a public school teacher. But when I hear about kids who grew up with parents in D.C., it's kind of similar to kids who grew up with parents in uh, Hollywood in that bit, they, yeah. they have these weird stories of, of just common day interact, common interactions with um, like, yeah, so and so play baseball with me and you're like that's a very famous person and you know sometimes when they talk about it they're so accustomed to it by the time they get to um you know our age that they are able to like couch it appropriately because they've been telling me stories forever and they know that i have to be like yes scalia went to my church they have to like put that in a context for people when did you become conscious that that your life was different in that way from a lot of people outside DC. well twice i mean first of all i was you know again i was sort of in a hyper political home too my brother was 12 years older so my brother sort of made it clear my brother josh is a correspondent for dayline nbc and uh um you know and i idolized him and still i'm afraid do and the um he taught me how to be on tv so if you don't like it it's on him if you don't um, like it so, talk to josh so, Talk to Josh. I mean, he literally taught me. He's like, you know, when you're when you're a TV reporter, which is how I started. He's like, first line, last line, stand up. The rest of it doesn't really matter. Um, the, uh, uh, but so he, I, I had a sense of it in DC, partly because we'd go to the supermarket, my dad and I, every Saturday, and uh, and and people would just stop him. I mean, there, I don't think we made a trip that somebody didn't, and. I couldn't get past that they would say, you know, hey, Frank, you know, I worked on the McGovern campaign or I was just, I paid attention to the McGovern campaign or Kennedy. And uh, and they'd say, thanks. Or, and he would go, oh, great. You know, and he'd say, you know, Frank, Ron, Baxter, you know, and say, oh, yeah, hey, Ron, you know. And I'd say, you don't know who that person is, do you? Go, nope, no idea. And I was like, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. Right? <laughs> so, and then I started to process that. I was like, oh, well, I guess people know him, but he doesn't know them, I guess. So he did something uh, big. Um, so I definitely got that. And then as I said, huge sports fan, sports has been such a big part of my life. And the first, uh, skins game I went to, which is probably the first sporting event, it was 73 or 74. And, uh, so I was either six or seven. I started as a football fan and basketball before and baseball. And, uh, um, and we go to a game. And so when I get asked ever, if I'm talking sports, I remember the first game you went to and I was like, yeah, yeah. We sat in, uh, uh, Ethel Kennedy's, uh, box. Uh, and I talked to Linda Carter, who was playing Wonderful. Right. Probably not everyone's first experience as a sporting event. Like I got that. And then when I, I went to LA in 1988, I, I, for the summer, it's only my second time out here, not even for the summer for like three weeks. And I stayed with my cousin, John, who's a screenwriter and showrunner now. And, uh, uh, and my cousin, Tim Davis, who is a Mankiewicz, but, uh, you know, through his mom, uh, my aunt. So he has a different last name. So he invites me to this party. And I guess the person at the party didn't get that he was a Mankiewicz. So who knows how close he was. But I get introduced, like, hey, Tim, this is my cousin, Ben Mankiewicz. And the guy I'd never met before. And he goes, of the Hollywood Mankiewiczes? Uh, and I go, yeah. And they, he clicked his heels together, and in my memory. Probably not true. But he brought his legs together, and he bowed, and he said, Hollywood royalty. And I was like, huh. Like, I, and I, it first thought is, you know, is, is Larry Spielberg behind me, right? You know, um, and so 
because fa- my father's father, Herman Mankiewicz, wrote Citizen Kane and was a successful screenwriter. His brother, Joe Mankiewicz, wrote and directed All About Eve, Butter Three Wives, Casablanca, and, uh, um, not Casablanca, sorry, Cleopatra. Significant difference. Um, and uh, Same plot. Yeah, same story, basically. Contains a uh, lot of, uh, the Asp did some great work in both of those stories. That's right, that's very right, yeah. Impressive. He was always, he was a very effective snake director, Joe. But Joe <laughs> is for, is for uh, Oscars, and uh, uh, and Herman, my grandfather, won for the Oscar he shared with the Orson Welles for Kane, for Citizen Kane. And so I knew that that existed, but to me, my dad was always, that was a big part of the family. That was the part that I knew, and I, I knew that they were, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. Uh, that, you know, look, and it's not like um, I come from Spielberg's, like it's just these are people who worked in a different generation, but to some people, and of course, people who watch Turner Classic movies and uh, people who respect and love Hollywood history, it did mean something. And I didn't, I didn't get that until I was 21. I knew it had happened, but I, I mean, he was just Uncle Joe and he seemed a little, uh, he was a little scary. Uh, but I didn't know him that well, but my dad talked to him on the phone all the time. So I just, it didn't process until I was 21, which is a little embarrassing, but that's the truth. I think it's interesting that to, to think about, um, being a man in a family with so many, uh, well-known men, including your own father. I wonder what that does in terms of you as a young person, as a young man, um, how, how it played into your idea of yourself and your place in the world. Like you said that you weren't a rebel. You weren't like, fuck you, man. I'm going to go set things on fire, which is what rebels do apparently in this bit that I'm doing. But um, you, uh, you know, you're a high achiever yourself. And I wonder when you were growing up, if you felt the, the shadow of the other men in your family as something you had to get out from, you had to make, make your own way in, in some fashion. Yeah, unquestionably. I mean, look, as a, you know, I, uh, obviously I feel the need to say at the top of what I'm about to say that I get it. Overall, obviously it helped me coming, not from money, not certainly from poverty, but, but you know, my, working in, working for the Peace Corps and in politics, my dad, you know, he wasn't a high paid consultant. He worked on campaigns at a time when there wasn't the kind of money flowing in now. So that's one of the big differences between the DC kids who tell me yeah, stories yeah, about right. their upbringing and the Hollywood kids who tell me stories about their upbringing. The DC kids are like, yeah, yeah, we, uh, yeah, you know, they have more sort of, it's interesting, the access to power in Washington, DC does not necessarily come paired with uh, enormous wealth. In Los Angeles, if you've got access to power in this town, mo- most likely, you know, you're, you're doing pretty fucking well. Um, that's right, not that's always right. true in DC, financially speaking. And certainly not true then, although the access to power mattered. So I come from a degree of privilege and, and, mm. and we lived above our means until my dad got into PR and started making a little a bit of uh, real money. Uh, but he was at that point, um, you know, 62. Um, and he worked really until the, the day he died. I worked until he was 90. He didn't know what else to do. I uh, didn't want to do anything. Else. So, um, you know, he had about 20 years of, of earning way more money than he than he had his last 20 years. Um, so, uh, uh, so I had this sense, really, that this still exists to some extent. I mean, I didn't really read a book on my own until I was like 17. I mean, I read what I was assigned, and I, I, I knew how to read. I'm a professional. Um, and uh, uh, but it just I almost uh, was uh, uh, afraid to. Uh, apply myself. I don't want to use the word intellectually because it's not really what it is, but to uh, to make myself uh, smarter, to test myself, to push myself. I think that's why I embrace sports a little bit um, because I thought I won't live up to the standard that my father had set. He was the smartest man. He wasn't just the smartest person I knew. He was really the smartest person almost anybody who knew him knew. Certainly in the top, you know, you ask all these smart friends of his, you know who are the five most smartest people you met? Like they just invariably, he's going to find his way onto that list. Um, he was also a great dad. He was unbelievably fantastic. Um, but he, uh, so I just didn't challenge myself and was afraid to challenge myself and sort of figured out a way that high school and college, I could get, you know, B pluses and be like, that's like, let's stop 
Then you also had an older brother, and a lot of times the oldest Mm -hmm. child, birth order-wise, I mean, I'm an oldest child, a lot of times the burden of of performing to the expectations or sort of trying to replicate or exceed the standard of the parent, not saying it was this way in your household, but, but it often falls to the eldest, and the younger one is um, or the younger ones are often expected to be the more charming fun ones that's sort of the general working stereotype no i think that's right i mean i think it took me it took me a while to find a voice that was amusing too i mean but i did that you know you know junior high where i was like oh i can my friends if i say something stupid they they're laughing you know and oh look the teacher laughed like this might work too and but then again that was another way to be like i don't have to if not push myself and find out that I'm not up to this standard. And then after I became aware or when it hit me, I was aware, but when it really hit me, the success that his father had had and, and that so many Mankiewicz had had, you know, and, and from my cousin, Tom, Joe's son, you know, wrote uh, three Bond movies and contributed to the script a couple more and Superman one and two, and then became a director himself. My cousin, you just sort of feel like, Oh, I'm going to be the one who's an idiot. And 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 maybe can uh, do some charm and, and charm people, but eventually everybody's going to figure out that I'm the, I'm the lightweight of the family. And if I really try, that'll become clear. So let me mm. fall back on on not putting forth the effort to even uh, to even not putting forth the effort to to prevent the failure that I sensed would come if I tried. Well, you failed at failing. So congrats. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you suck at failing. You've done uh, a really interesting career that um, has so many different aspects to it. And you've gotten to have, I'm sure, some really fascinating conversations with an incredible variety of people with whom you may not have come into contact if you had chosen to, you know, follow the exact or tried to follow the exact path of any of the people who came before you and your family, because there's no way to do that. There's no way to replicate that. And at times I think that we do, you know, I got my master's in teaching and tried to follow sort of a version of my mother's example, but that wasn't for me. And um, I've worked in business and I enjoy it, but I'm not my father either. We each kind of cobble together our own identity and our own path. And and, and and you certainly have done that. Do you feel right now uh, like happy with, or perhaps happy is not the right word. Do you feel satisfied with what you've done and what you're doing? And are you interested in doing different things than you've ever tried before? That's a really weird multi, multi- no, I got it. I, question. I, I, I am sort of, I am satisfied and I'm pleased that I sort of carved my own thing out. I still think I haven't really uh, pushed myself and it's still that same fear. Like what if I really try to write a screenplay? What if I really try to develop a series? What if well, I satisfied isn't, isn't complacent. You're not complacent. No, I'm not complacent. Um, but, uh, you know, I am, first of all, if you want to insult me, you know, I'm, I'm largely uninsultable. Until you suggest, until you get to that thing that is a, a, that like, oh, I've only succeeded because of my family, right? Oh. And the reason that penetrates is because, on some level, I think clearly, I, if I don't think it's true, I at least worry about that, right? Well, that, that comes for that. for anybody who I have a friend who mm-hmm. grew up in a small town in the deep, deep south, and her father was a pastor of the biggest church in town. And she's not a Christian and she's not uh, a religious leader, but her life was defined the early eight, first 18 years by having this father who was a huge figure. And so if she got things in school, if she got awards, she was very hardworking, very creative, very artsy, very weird. But if she got awards and stuff, she felt, and sometimes it was because other people said it, that it was because of who her dad was. So sure, if that's yeah. true in a tiny little town, um, with that framework, of course, that's going to feel true for folks whose father's last names are in the newspaper or who are on TV announcing major events. And so you, that's very natural to feel that way, I think. And, and it, it, it scales up like for tiny towns on up. That's absolutely 
something. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. It's all the scale. Like to her, I'm sure, you know, he was again, he maybe he's the most famous person in town, right? Most he was. He town, was right? absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was she couldn't go, she said to me once she couldn't go to the corner store without makeup on and her hair done, or people would start talking about, you know, Pastor So-and-so's kid was messing up. So if that's true, of course it's true when we add major media and major history and world events to the mix. Of course you might feel that yeah. way sometimes. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I get that I that that's an acceptable, understandable human way to feel, which is advice I give to people all the time. But just because it's a human way to feel doesn't necessarily doesn't alleviate that feeling. But eventually, you just get comfortable with it. I mean, it helped me to say, "Hey, look, I'm never, I'm not as smart as my father. It's okay. Nobody is, literally. No, you know, or you know, very few people are. And um, and I'll have a, a different kind of success. And the things I'm good at, at sort of you know, uh, uh, what I've learned I'm good at, what I've worked on and to, you know, ha- do these interviews in a way that is uh, where the audience feels like they get something out of it. Uh, that, that matters. That is the thing I'm good at. Uh, I'm a pretty good storyteller on TV. I'm a good broadcaster. Like that's almost what I think of more than anything else. I'm a, you know, uh, what do I do? I'm a broadcaster. And, and I like that job. I, it's okay. That's, that's, and I know, and I'm, you know, I can talk sports. I can talk movies. I can talk politics. Well, you know, I grew up around politics. I get it. I understand it. Um, uh, so that's okay. But I still feel it. It doesn't change. I still mm. feel like I'm not. I'm the one who's not creative, um, not as creative, and it's okay. Like I, I, I then, and I say it out loud, and I think, well, that's stupid. But you no, still, it's you know, relatable. it's still, it's baked in. It's baked in. It's 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 part of who I am, and it's going to be to some extent part of who my daughter is no matter how many times I tell her or make clear to her that that doesn't, that that doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. I mean, the great thing is that you can relate to her and talk about that. And, you know, I mean, I don't know who the hell anybody else in your family was. I just think you're fucking dope. But I was like, why did he live in DC? <laughs> I was mildly right. confused. I was like, why is that? What? Who? All right. And, you know, you become, what's funny is that, if you come from this this clan of people who are big performers in various ways, not necessarily literally, mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> you you are the entry point for a lot of people. Your dad was the entry point for some people. Your brother's the entry point for some people. And so, like, it really is fascinating to think about generationally how we carry on these roles. How we, I mean, I I so often think lately about um, generational trauma, <laughs> intergenerational trauma, and, and how we hand things down inadvertently. This is different. This is like a generational That's success. Right. Uh, how we hand out this is sort of like, although this carries with it pressure as well. But but the the success of the legacy and sort of the carrying that banner forth, it's very very you know it's it's very interesting um and not something i really had thought about much until this very conversation so thank you thank you um, for that well good i'm glad i could uh, i'm glad i could contribute in that regard yeah generational trauma i mean there's no question i mean my uh, you know i i but that sort of didn't come from my father as much but certainly from my mother you know a child of the depression uh, you know lost their home during the depression comes home from school everything's out in the front yard uh her Jesus. next door neighbor a story she told only 2,865 times, uh, Japanese American taken away, uh, uh, during the war to a internment camp. Um, so the idea of sort of suffering and hardship and, and, uh, life is hard and life deals you one bad, one blow after another, that defined a lot of my mother's life, especially after my parents split up, which she didn't really ever recover from. In the last my grandmother didn't. My mom's mom was the same way. She never really recovered from that. Yeah, 30 years she lived after that sort of full of, uh, and I'm, I mean, she, she died uh, just in November and she had Alzheimer's for the last five and a half years, but, and lost some of the bitterness when she started to get sick. But, and that, no question that got handed down to me. And I still sort of, I, I, that, that added to this sense of guilt, like, oh, look at all these things you have. You shouldn't be enjoying them because somebody lost their home today. Some of that's good, right? Some of that provides a, a perspective that, that, that allows you to, to have significant empathy for, for other people um, who don't have what you have. And mm-hmm. empathy is critically important. And, and, and when I was talking politics every day in my life that mattered because those the 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 people who championed 
doing something about that, who legitimately thought that people shouldn't, during this current crisis, we've got to make people whole, not just because it's the right thing to do. First of all, it will boost us all up, right? It'll make coming out of this easier. Um, and people should have health care and, and all these things that, that people should not be worried about whether they, when they get coronavirus, whether that's going to devastate them financially, right? Or if any member of the exactly. family gets sick. So, so you pay attention to that. So that's good. The downside is this sort of sense of, of, of guilt with every success that you, that, that everything is, that you can't experience joy. And my mother, very, very difficult for her to experience joy, even before they split up. And that had a fair amount to do with why they split up. Well, joy for her, perhaps in some ways, was a betrayal of her own parents, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just armchair psychoanalyzing. But I would imagine that as a child, as a young woman, you saw your folks brought to their knees by uh, by poverty. You saw your your neighbors taken away for um, to be interned unjustly. Uh, that in some way it would sear into my brain, and I might hand that down inadvertently. That oh, I like, don't, yeah, definitely. Like oh, I don't think it was shit. intentional. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's that's something I've seen a lot when I have had conversations with people, myself included, right now about. How we handle um, how we handle the anxiety of this time. I mean, when you a lot, I have a lot of friends who are adult children of alcoholics. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And my dad is an adult child of an alcoholic, um, and so I think when you grow up in any kind of dysfunctional family household, some people, the ones who don't get to act out all the time, uh, learn how to plan and learn how to worry. Because if you can worry maybe you can avert disaster in future. And some of those people are the ones who've been doing okay with the anxiety because they already had a generator or they already had a bunch of extra food or they already figured out how much fuel they needed to purchase to get through it. You know, that there are gifts in, there are gifts in intergenerational and just solo trauma. That doesn't mean we want people to experience those things. That doesn't mean that it's worth it necessarily, but there are gifts in these matters. I'd say. Yes, um, it's, it's look. We you know it's what my wife and I work on. Uh, you know, not handing down our nonsense to our daughter. Like we're conscious of it in a way that I don't think parents were um, before. So we make that effort. I don't know whether we're succeeding. We might be talking about it. Oh, uh, just the effort helps. My parents did the best they could in that regard, and. Uh, and it helped. Just the effort helps. Just knowing you can talk to your parent, you don't have to be ashamed if you're like, I'm stressed, and your parent won't be like, get out of here. Just right, knowing they'll listen yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Well, ben, I've kept yeah. you so much longer than I said I would. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've spent the time. Um, can you tell the good people where they can find your stuff online and uh, elsewhere? Sure. Uh, uh, ben Mank 77 at the uh, uh, twitter.com. Uh, uh, seven seven for um, uh, the your the, year of uh, birth. The year, well, ten years after with the year <laughs> I turned ten, uh, but the year I became a baseball fan. Um, and uh, um, and uh, I'm on Instagram, but I don't use it. But I'm trying. I may start. Um, <laughs> I'm certainly going to share the videos that I'm making for TCM. We're going to put on Instagram too. So uh, yeah, um, and of course you can uh, see me on the on the, on Turner Classic Movies and occasionally on the uh, on the uh, well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate getting to talk to you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to my interview with Ben Mankiewicz. Please support the Actors Fund. If you're looking to help out entertainers, in fact, some of the people who are helped by the Actors Fund are people who worked on the very films that get highlighted on Turner Classic Movies. The Actors Fund has a residence in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, a nursing home, a long-term care facility for people, anyone in entertainment, and they tend to be elderly. A lot of them are actors, but some of them were lighting technicians. I've got, you know, people who are directors, people who are animators, all kinds of things. And so when you support the Actors Fund, you help people, some of whom worked on the very classic movies that you may have enjoyed recently.
You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash Sarah Benincasa and subscribing for as little as a dollar a month. You can support this podcast and you can get in on all sorts of goodies and treats and fun things. And regardless, you will get access to the weekly patron-only newsletter that I write, which is called Serotonin. And it's a, I think it's a good time. You know, I'm biased. You can also shop for clothing at matrushka.com slash code slash Sarah. That's matrushka.com slash code slash S-A-R-A. You'll get 20% off plus free shipping. And, uh, you know, I'm a brand affiliate, so that would help. That's pretty cool. You can also help support this podcast by writing reviews, positive ones, I would assume. If you want to write a shitty review, just how about you don't? and go listen to something else. That's what I do. (laughs) Thank you for the positive reviews that we've gotten. It's really lovely. The the five stars, keep them coming. I love it. And you can also help the podcast by subscribing. That helps too. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Let's all take a deep breath right now. And let's practice the square breath again. Some of you will be familiar with this because I've, I've talked about it before. But it's a really great way to get your mind off things and get you to focus on your breathing. So we're going to do a slow inhale for four, hold for four, slow exhale for four, hold for four. And we're going to keep those counts even. So it's going to sound like this. Get ready. Breathe normally. And here we go. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four. And now breathe normally. (sighs) Imagine if that's how you breathe normally all the time. So let's do the square breath together again one more time. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four. Now just breathe normally. If it feels comfortable, move your head around a little bit, move your neck around a little bit, move your shoulders around a little bit. Wiggle your butt if you need to, wiggle your toes. Just remember that you're here on planet Earth right now. You're in your body. This moment is the only one we have. I'm glad that you chose to spend it with me. I appreciate you. I like you and I love you. Be good to yourselves. You can say hi at Sarah J. Benincasa on Twitter and on Instagram. Also at Well This Isn't Normal on Instagram. You can also email Sarah at sarahbenincasa.com. And again, patreon.com slash sarahbenincasa is the place to go if you want to subscribe. Help me pay Jonathan, the wonderful engineer, and get the weekly newsletter along with some other things. Thanks a lot. Take good care. You deserve it. Bye-bye.